Hi, and thank you so much for joining me today on The Gospel Lens. The scripture calls us to be sojourners and exiles, and to view this world in the current age as a place where believers don't fully belong. However, we face a wide variety of experiences and circumstances on our path. So we hope this can be an encouragement, an edification, or challenge as we try to take a microscope to events, experiences, and situations in our lives and ask the question, how does my identity in Christ and the gospel determine my perspective and response to life and events on my exile path? Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Now last time we saw how the preacher in Ecclesiastes looked at the world and recognized that things were broken, that life doesn't work the way that it seems like it should, and that meaning, fulfillment, and happiness were not to be found in any potential source under the sun. Well, this week, we're going to see a timely principle from Ecclesiastes chapter 3 about corruption in the world systems. Now, the first part of chapter 3 involves the preacher telling us that everything has its appointed time, from birth and death, killing and healing, weeping and laughter, love and hate, war and peace. It's probably one of the more well-known parts of the book, and I referenced it last time. It's the source of a famous song. He isn't just saying this to show cycles, the idea that now I'm experiencing the season of tears, but soon different times will come. Rather, he's emphasizing that we are in God's time. Now, he has ordained a time for everything, and we're creatures caught in a trap of mortality, both good and bad. God has ordained the times, and man is caught in these appointed times, with a desire for more in his heart, but emphasizing that everything has its appointed time. And man, even though, as the preacher will say, he has eternity in his heart, he can't break free from this cycle of time. Now, part of the reason we're told by the preacher is to glorify God as creator, that he has established these that man would fear before him. It's to remind man of our mortality, to underscore that our actions, they don't ultimately change the pattern of our world. See, our work has no meaning for the preacher because at the end of the day, we're still in God's appointed time. He's already established all of the the times and seasons for these different things. And no matter how hard we work, we can't change those times. So his conclusion from this section is to enjoy what God has given us to the best of our ability and take pleasure even in this existence in God's time as a gift from God. What God has done is complete. It can't be added to or have something removed from it. God will be feared. Even that passage where we see the preacher say that he has made all things beautiful in their time. Often we can look at that and, and we focus so much attention on that word beautiful that even in the dark times, the times of tears or the times of, of death or sorrow, that somehow God has, will, will add a beautiful element. Well, what the preacher means by that is not that God will change things or not that he will add the beautiful part, but that the very orderliness, the fact that God has ordained times, he has made everything beautiful or you could say proper or well-placed in their own time, in the times that he has established. Now, in the second half of chapter 3, the preacher is going to move on to discuss a specific area of life that provides a new example of vanity and absurdity. 
He says that he looked to the place of justice and righteousness, and even in those places that should be safe and the expected source of right, he found wickedness. So here he makes a new point. Even the justice of man is corrupt. Now, under the sun, as we've mentioned, refers to life in this world and time. The preacher here says that justice under the sun is a lost cause. Go to man for justice and you'll find injustice. Go to man for righteousness, and even there you'll find wickedness. The preacher doesn't go into great detail explaining this. He simply states the fact and accepts it. However, here is also where a new perspective comes in. Now, the preacher has established that man is caught in mortality, times appointed that he cannot control and cannot change. We are in God's time, but that's not a bad thing especially for his current topic of justice, because God's time includes justice. Man can't change God's appointed times. And just like everything the preacher discussed in chapter 1 and 2, justice and righteousness will not be perfect. But here the preacher turns to hope, because the fact that God has appointed times means not only that man is in God's time, but that justice and righteousness also fall in those times. See, when the preacher looks at matters under the sun, he sees only imperfect justice and flawed righteousness. But he affirms that God is the judge. He's established that God is in control of times and these appointed times. And now he applies that principle to justice. Justice under the sun is corrupt. There's no escaping that. But there is a judge who stands above and outside that under the sun system. And the preacher looks with hope to the day when this judge will justly judge between righteous and wicked. See, the same God who has appointed times under the sun for all matters, including love, hate, war, and peace, has also established a time for justice to be performed. See, there's an unavoidable tension between what we see in the world and the reality of God as the judge. Just like the preacher saw this absurdity, this vanity, when he looked at wealth and power and wisdom and folly in the first couple of chapters, well, here he sees that same vanity and, and absurdity when he looks at justice. But he sees a tension between seeing, looking at the world and seeing the corruption of justice and knowing that the ruler is a perfectly just judge. See, for the preacher, he rather simply accepts that justice is corrupt in the world. He doesn't argue it. He doesn't even spend a lot of time illustrating it as he's done with previous ideas. But here he finds hope and, and perhaps even a measure of comfort in the fact that God is the judge and has appointed a future day for judgment. Now, obviously, this passage has a great deal to say about current events. If there's any topic that has been brought up repeatedly recently, it's justice. When people are calling for justice, or when they are debating what justice looks like or what it should look like, it's important to remember that the scripture teaches and says a great deal about justice. But Ecclesiastes teaches us an important lesson or some important lessons to remember as we wrestle with justice or with a lack of justice in this world. See, the preacher isn't just acknowledging that justice was corrupt in his time. The, the point of this book is not to show what things were like then and how much they've improved between then and now. He's observing principles and truths about the world, not just his world. The way that God allows, or could we even say the way that he determines that the world will function. 
So you remember a principle that was brought up earlier, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. The ways and plans of God are beyond our intellectual ability to understand. He's even more clear later in the book. In chapter 7, he will say, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? See, he takes an expected concept that God makes straight things that are crooked, and he reverses it to remind us that God's sovereignty extends beyond fixing what is broken. The preacher gives us an observation on how the world functions. Not only does God straighten those things that are crooked, but if God has made something crooked, if God has designed something to function in a certain way, man can't fix that. It's not less true in our time. If anything, the world has morphed the corruption of justice so that sometimes it isn't as apparent and often it's much harder to address. Now, I realize this leaves a lot unsaid about this section of Ecclesiastes, but what are some lessons that we can take even from these few thoughts? Probably more than we have time for, but let's focus on just a few. First, if anyone in the world has reason to assume that justice is corrupted, it should be believers. See, on its best day in human history, the victories of man's justice have been cases of almost there. There have been times when they got closer than others, but overall, it has never been and can never be perfect. It can only be a flawed reflection of true justice from the true judge. To claim, or for anyone to claim, that it can be anything else is to deny the influence of sin in the world. If the world could fix itself, it would have. We require the intervention of someone outside of the fallen world. See, as I mentioned before, humanity is infected. Believers should be the first to recognize and acknowledge that. We recognize that sin corrupts. Sin twists our ability to recognize and pursue true justice. Second, believers are left in a tension between commitment to justice that God loves and therefore a responsibility to and command to promote justice in the world, but also understanding that the world around us won't ever achieve that goal, at least not as they should. Now, does this mean that we give up on the pursuit? Well, no, because Scripture is very clear that God desires that his people promote justice. That's why I use the term tension. Think of, as an illustration, we pursue sanctification as believers, knowing that we will not reach our goal in this life. But we pursue it all the same because our God is holy, and we want to reflect that as best we can. We pursue and promote justice, knowing that we will not reach that goal in this life, but we pursue it. Because our God is a God of justice, and we want to reflect that. So the first lesson is that, again, if anyone in the world has reason to just assume and, and stand up and, and agree that, yes, justice is corrupt and often lacking in this world, it should be believers. Second, believers are caught in a tension where we, are, we follow the pattern of God in pursuing justice while at the same time knowing that justice in this world is corrupt. Third, imitating Christ and trying to pattern our thinking after our God means that we come alongside hurting people. Yes, to pursue justice, but also to comfort them, to bind their wounds. Notice that even in the somewhat dark outlook of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 4, he's going to talk about oppressed people. And he will say that he heard the cry of the oppressed and there was no one to comfort them. On the side of those that did the oppressing, there was power. 
and there was no one to comfort the oppressed. Part of their experience, the part of their experience that he focuses on, that he repeats, is not that they were oppressed, it's that there was no one to comfort them. As Christians, we're people of a God who is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Of God who heals the brokenhearted, binds up their wounds. The beauty of this calling for believers is that it transcends any personal opinion or viewpoint on an individual situation. Instead, we can look at that individual with compassion. We, we can offer comfort. We can offer love. We can offer compassion. Now, these ideas are not necessarily unique. Most believers would not disagree with the ideas that I've given. They would agree that justice is corrupt. They might disagree as to the degree of the corruption. They would agree that Christians are called to pursue justice. They would agree that Christians are called to comfort and heal, to bind the wounds, to, to, to be near to the brokenhearted. And these ideas don't necessarily help us to know what justice is in any given situation, but there are some good places to start. See, when people are crying out that this or that injustice just couldn't exist, or at least couldn't exist to the degree perhaps that someone has accused, if someone says, look at that injustice, and someone else says, no, 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 it's really not that bad, because we're better than that, Christians should be suspicious. I say that because people are not better than that. If we have proven anything over the past several thousand years, it is that mankind is not better than that. I'm saddened and sometimes shocked at how many believers focus significant attention on defending what seems to be national pride or a political ideology when talking about justice or oppression. See, when people point to a heritage of a nation or a document or a legal system or an economic system and say that any of those things prevents injustice, there should at least be a little suspicion on our part because power breeds oppression. The preacher will make that point a bit later. He'll say again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. The principles we see in Ecclesiastes call on us to leave our nationalistic pride, our faith in human structures, our temptation to downplay the hurt of people because it doesn't fit our narrative or because we believe that they're taking their narrative too far or because we're, we're assured that in our nation with our laws, it couldn't be that bad. We can't rely on human structures to provide true justice because they can't do it. But we pursue it just the same. We're called to submit to and honor human authorities because God has created an order. But we also understand that human authorities tend to oppression. They will tend towards injustice. Remember, the preacher wants us, remember the theme of the entire book, the preacher wants us to look at the world with him and notice the shortcomings, to focus on the broken pieces, places where the world structures cannot accomplish what they're supposed to accomplish. Whether that be wealth not bringing satisfaction and fulfillment, whether that be the pursuit of pleasure and wisdom not bringing satisfaction or fulfillment, or whether that be the systems of justice and righteousness not bringing justice. So how does the gospel through these principles in Ecclesiastes change our view? The gospel is the story of God's mission to fix the brokenness in the world. But notice that he didn't choose to come in the form of a political leader. He didn't come and go through the legal system. 
He came to address the biggest problem that man has, and he did it through tremendous suffering, injustice, and heartache. See, there are two equally damaging pits that we can fall into when we're looking at the topic of justice in our world. See, one is to ignore the presence of a problem or to completely ignore justice because we say, well, all our hope is in future justice. The other pit, though, is to speak or act as if everything can be resolved by our efforts in pursuit of justice. At times in history, God has used different earthly tools to accomplish good things. No one would deny that, even if rarely, man has managed to make some progress and wipe out some undeniably evil activities. To deny that God wants us to pursue justice is to deny the God of Scripture. But the tension I spoke of earlier is the fact that we pursue justice with the knowledge in the back of our minds that wickedness is in the place of justice. We're in the tension of James, reminding us that simply telling the hungry person that you hope they will be warmed and filled is not enough. But also, Peter telling us that Jesus, when faced with injustice, committed his hope for true justice to the true judge. Often those two things can seem at odds. We pursue justice while understanding that justice is something we may never reach. The gospel and our position in Christ means that we can take people and should take people to so much more hope than just justice the world can provide. Not instead of the other. Remember, the good Samaritan still helped the man. He didn't just pause to remind him that one day God would avenge him. See, we have to remember that the gospel calls us to love others through both our words and our actions. To remind them and show them that they are loved by God's people, especially those that are hurting and suffering. You might disagree with the, the depth of their suffering. You might disagree with their response to the suffering. But you would be hard-pressed to find an example where someone's perception of their own experience or their own suffering somehow tempers the love that is shown them, the compassion that is shown to them from the gospel. See, it's so easy for believers to be drawn into ideology debates. So much of our discourse today is dominated by arguments of ideology, liberalism versus conservatism, right versus left, various forms of tribalism. The result is that Christians are not known for following in the footsteps of Christ. Rather, their response is patterned after the opinion of their chosen tribe. For example, if you look at recent events, after any tragedy like the George Floyd case, you have about 24 to 48 hours of universal outrage where everyone is in perfect agreement that something terrible has happened. An injustice has been done. But after that initial period, universal agreement and outrage is quickly replaced by partisan responses and the results of the outrage. You almost immediately see people taking sides in the debate. And so often there are two sides, and they're aligned along political and sociological opinions. Before you know it, Christians are aligning with the conservative right response, while others might be aligning with more progressive viewpoints. There is rarely a third position representing a believer's response. And even when you have a voice that comes out and says, no, we, there should be a third Christian response, they are so quickly dogpiled by both sides of the political and sociological debate. And suddenly their voice is drowned out by those that say, oh, you're simply leaning towards the other side. Energy is spent showing why the other viewpoint is wrong and demonizing them. There's nothing in scripture to support this type of tribalistic response from believers. 
we should represent a completely different perspective. If you view the situation as a defensive American, you've missed your way. If you view the situation as proof that the platforms of the left or the platforms of the right are destroying things while your chosen tribe has the solutions, you've missed your way. We are strangers in this land, passing by and noticing a man or people injured on the road. Perhaps the man is raging in response. While we might do something to address that, it does not in any way remove our responsibility to reflect Christ to him. Perhaps the man isn't as innocent as he claims. Perhaps he is. Maybe he represents a major conversation that needs to take place about the state and condition of Roman justice. But for Christians, he represents primarily an opportunity to show Christ. A Christ-like response shouldn't look like alignment with a secular ideological tribe because no matter how much you like their economics or their ethics, their justice will always be corrupted by the influence of sin. Their response will always, in some way, big or maybe even small ways, it will always be off base. The gospel demands that we align with an ideology that is unique. It looks like healing, like showing love, like showing compassion for conditions, like concern for the soul. It looks like a savior who came to show love in suffering and redeem a chosen race from a broken world. Now, it might seem like we've moved a long way away from Ecclesiastes, but really, we haven't gone that far. See, the problems that I just mentioned occur because believers, often unconsciously, make a crucial mistake. Either they fail to take into account or they don't really believe what the preacher is trying to tell us. We might never say it, but often through our words or our actions, we project the belief that the world isn't really that broken. It isn't really quite the vanity pool that he makes it out to be. See, the preacher was just lacking the advancements we've made in our thinking. He didn't have the conservative thought of today to fix things, or he didn't have the progressive ideas that give hope. Or we look at the preacher's words, we believe them, and then wrongly assume that he's just pointing out the areas that we need to fix. It just needs some tweaking, and it can all be made right. A little bit more effort on our part, focus a little more attention on the areas that the preacher has looked at and said, that's broken, a little more effort to fix them, and we'll set it all to rights. The preacher is reduced to either a depressed cynic who's overstating the problem dramatically, or he's just an inspector, letting us know where the leaks are so that we can get to work. But the preacher is neither of those things. He's pointing out the deficiencies of the world, and the only solution for his deficiencies is the gospel. Justice is broken under the sun, but in Christ, God began his march toward ultimate justice. Oppression is the partner of power. And the rulers oppress their people. But God offers his people freedom that isn't dependent on their physical realities. And at the cross, the kingdom of God began an inexorable march to victory. A victory that will see the perfect king and judge on the throne of a world that is finally healed. See, we're in the tension of looking to and pointing people toward that world, even as we partner with them to heal and comfort and even stand for justice and right in the broken world. We point people to the Savior as the solution and healer. We don't point them to borrow first century positions. We don't point them to the emperor. We go to the world with the same spirit as the Samaritan, not walking by in silence but binding the wounds and offering care. We pursue justice 
for the poor and oppressed, while at the same time offering hope for ultimate true justice in the God who will judge the righteous and the wicked. Because as the preacher says, there is a time for every matter and for every work. See, we look at the world and we're reminded why he came. So we call a broken system for what it is. Then we take people to the true source of hope and healing. We can love others because the gospel is God's love to us. We can provide healing and bind the wounds of those that are hurting because he is, to quote Paul, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This has been part two of our study in Ecclesiastes, looking at how an examination of the broken world around us drives us to the gospel and how our identity in Christ drives us to respond to that brokenness. I hope you'll join us again next time as we continue to look at the book of Ecclesiastes and examine our experiences in and responses to the broken world through the gospel lens. Mm-hmm.